I'm Ryan Jeffrey, and this is the Passionate About OSS podcast. The purpose of the podcast is to shine a light on the brilliant minds in the OSS and telco industry, to describe a little bit about their background, knowledge, tips, and techniques. But today we'll be taking a closer look at developing a market for your OSS BSS. Our guest has got a brilliant background for marketing and OSS. He's been in the industry and working with these tools and promoting these tools for around about 20 years with icons such as Alcatel Lucent, InfoVista, Comptel, Nokia, and even uh, Alcatel and Comptel coming back to Nokia and is now with Digital Route. Uh, he also has a really strong technical background, so technical training back in the days of Newbridge Networks and as a technical consultant at Alcatel. He's now Head of Product Marketing at uh, Digital Route, and I'm delighted to have him on the call because he's a brilliant marketing strategist. Welcome to Steve Hately. Thank you, Ryan. Nice to, nice to be here. Good to talk to you. Uh, great to have you on. So Steve and I first met back in around about 2012 when Passionate About OSS was just starting to make a presence via our blog. He was working at Comtel and uh, came across to Melbourne to lead Comtel's brilliant Next-A-Day Roadshow. So we'll talk about next today in a, a little bit more detail later. But I never really asked you, is that one of your brainchilds? It was a uh, collaboration, really, of a couple of us in the marketing team, with myself and my, my colleague who was looking after the BSS side of, of the portfolio. And, uh, and we also worked with a professional storyteller uh, who, who also helped us to really build because it was going to be such a big workshop mm. it was you know we got some outside help to really help us construct the flow of the, of the thing and then we took it on from there we spent a couple of days with him and then we we took it on and developed it further but uh, like you said it was a an excellently successful and fun roadshow to do so uh, yeah 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 and it was more than just a roadshow but maybe we'll get back to that uh, a little bit later so your networking and OSS journey goes a little bit further back than 2012, though, back to, to Newbridge Networks. But even before that, you stint with the Royal Navy, and re that really heavily involved avionics. Are there many parallels between avionics and telco software? Um, well, obviously, com communications in you know the, the, the part of the Royal Navy that I was in. So I was in the fleet air arm and uh, working on uh, fixed wing jets and also um, attack helicopters. So, um, but each of those obviously have got their own communications systems. But unfortunately I wasn't working on the communication systems in the helicopters. I was actually on, as you said, avionics and also weapon systems. Mm. Um, so no, there wasn't um, a direct bridge. The bridge really came when um, I left the Royal Navy and went to work for GK and Westlands who were uh, building the Navy's next state-of-the-art helicopter, the mm. uh, EH-101. Um, and I went into the training department of GKM Westlands, and we were building computer-based training packages for the Royal Navy to use as they learned about the new helicopter. Mm. Um, so in there, really, it was about you know understanding in the minds of the engineers that were going to be using the new helicopter what did they need to know about about the helicopter you know and how we could get it across to them in the best way so we had to formulate questions and, and the appropriate responses and content that we could put out to them put out to them on uh, on computer-based training mm. and fascinating so was that really the bridge between a career in the navy and and the first steps towards being in the telco and OSS industry that 
uh, that you're in now? Well, I I kind of got bought in by chance, really, uh, into the training department uh, because I was moving from I was working in a training department into the training department of Newbridge Networks, who at that time were employing a lot of ex forces personnel purely because of their experience and ability to articulate mm. themselves, you know, because in the military, you know, you're encouraged to articulate, speak up, be direct, etc. So um, they were um, very co- uh, keen to recruit ex-forces people into that department, regardless of their background. Mm. So I basically went there, gave a, gave a presentation to them. Um, I think it was a helicopter-based presentation, actually, um, and, and got the job more or less there and then. Um, so I got into telecoms the, the back door by coming in through the training department. <laughs> and, and do you think uh, those learnings and that, that ability to communicate has really shaped your approach to marketing for the, the more modern career that you've had? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you when you're in a training department, and especially the way that I did it by coming in with no experience of comms, you're instantly dragged into a technology that you don't know, um, using uh, a plethora of acronyms that you've never mm-hmm. seen before, um, and all of a sudden you you know you've got four weeks to learn it and then articulate it and present it to an audience, an international audience of people who had paid good money to fly in from all over the world to sit down and listen to you speak. So it's uh, it's kind of a baptism by fire, really. However, looking forward now, 20 years on, I can see that um, that experience of having to think on my feet and work out how to articulate the story of how to teach this product um, has really, um, you know, stood as a good background for what I do now. Mm-hmm. And without DBA, death by acronym, Yes, yes, yeah, avoid that as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. And you were really in for the heady days at Newbridge where ATM was all the rage. What did you train people on? Well, I, I came in just before ATM, actually. <laughs> ATM wasn't a thing when I got there. Um, they were just moving away from X25, mm-hmm. uh, and we were. I started training on the 3600, which was the mainstream TDM switch. So I did that, and, and it was basically a case of learning all of the individual cards which were slotted into there to switch across these eight kilobit time slots mm, between. Massive. Um, yeah, exactly. Eight kilobit time slots switched in a matrix between the cards in the control plane, uh, and we used to program it. Forget network management. We used to program that using CLI for each individual circuit. So it was um, it was properly, you know, without... Consciously knowing it, I probably got, probably got into the technical of the uh, TDM switch. But we did a 3600 and then the, the multiplex version of that, which was a 3645, where you could put together, I think it was four or eight of those shelves together to form a big multiplexer. And then we were also teaching CPSS, which was the, whether you remember that, that was the Newbridge proprietary switching protocol, the control mm. package switch system. We used to teach on that, which was the um, the communications protocol. And then I moved on to the the 46020 at the time, uh, which which had been the 4602. And that was the the network manager, which was one of the only network management platforms that could actually properly manage um, a telecom service end-to-end across multiple domains. Mm. So it was it was fairly revolutionary, really, what that platform could do using CPSS 
to construct these services, which which spanned across multiple domains, which previously had only been done by linking together multiple element management systems mm. to build that end-to-end service. So the 46020 had a really good reputation back in the day. Mm. And clearly yeah. very, very technical roles that you had, but uh, you then made the move to product marketing and you've been there ever since. So that must have been a really inspired decision. What, uh, what triggered the change from being really technical hands-on with that training to yeah, more of the product marketing roles? Well, I'd, I'd done a couple of years there in training um, and I'd kind of moved as far as I wanted to really. I'd done quite a lot of the technical equipment and the 46020 was then by that stage managing the 36170, which was the ATM switch. Mm. And I just decided to step into pre-sales, to be honest. Mm. I went into pre-sales, but I only did that for 12 months. The line-to-line responses on RFPs and RFQs uh, really did kill me off quite quickly. Um, <laughs> sitting there day in, day out, just responding with boilerplate responses. But the one thing about that role was that occasionally we got to present the responses to customers on site, you know, at workshops. And that was what I really enjoyed. Mm. So, um, so the opportunity came up that they were looking for a product marketing manager in, in Europe um, for the 46020, ironically. And, um, and I stepped into that role and I was working with our Canadian R&D team and the MPI team in, in Newport and South Wales. Mm. South Wales in Wales, <laughs> as opposed to uh, in your part of the world. Yeah, the New South Wales, yeah. The, the old South, South Wales. Wales. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that was a really fun time, actually, just going out and, and presenting. But the funny thing was, at, at that time, network management and and it was for many years after, was still just a black art mm. because the world was dominated by the, you know, by Cisco and by IP and, and you know, they were really leading the way with Juniper mm. and everything was CLI based. It mm. was just so CLI centric. So you go out there and, you know, you've got a three hour workshop with a customer, two hours, 45 minutes, we'll be talking about cards and slots mm. and, and backplane technology of the hardware and shown through CLI and then, oh yeah, we've got 15 minutes at the end. Here's the network management guy. He can give you a quick, quick overview. <laughs> well, I'm impressed that it was 15 minutes. I thought it's more yeah, like two well, and a half to three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and do you think the, the tech background really helped that or hindered the transition to marketing? Uh, I have uh, some uh, thoughts in mind, but uh, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts about uh, whether it helped or hindered no, it definitely helps. You know, anybody that's in that's in this part of the industry or, or this industry in, in, in general, um, if you're marketing, if you're doing a product marketing role, you need to have a good technical understanding, at least of the principles of what you're trying to market. Mm. Because, you know, marketing gets a bad rap anyway. So, you know, you know, we're the greatest, we're the greatest liars on the planet, according to most people. <laughs> And you know, you say you say you're in marketing, and they either look at you as if you're a you know a complete fabricator, mm. or they they look at you as if you're just talking up in the clouds, and what you're saying mm. doesn't make any sense anyway. So I I think what's absolutely critical in a product marketing position is to make sure that you're telling the truth and the facts. Don't bend the facts. Don't lie about stuff or over exaggerate what you're trying to position. Just just make sure that your story is right for what you can actually 
deliver you know mm. i mean yes okay you can still market things which are six months sometimes at a stretch nine months down the line mm. because that's how long the sales cycle is in telco generally mm. but um anything further further ahead than that where you don't have a lockdown roadmap it's you know you shouldn't really be doing product marketing mm. and i guess just the fact that you have an understanding of the products that people would use it would give you a little more empathy for what the the marketing messaging would be uh, like what are the what are the stories that or what are the benefits that the products are there to to help solve for those techie people who maybe are still on CLIs in some cases? Yeah, I like to think of it as you know our role in product marketing is to keep sales honest, but at the same time help product management articulate what they're trying to sell mm. because you've got two separate separate aspects there product management are building something that they have been told to build or you know a number of customer requirements have come in and so they're building based on that and they're just building a product and then if you try and take that directly to market all you end up doing is pushing a load of features which are perhaps not differentiating or not of value you know so so basically you're talking to somebody that's not listening but at the same time, you know, if sales get wind of a new product and they don't get it articulated to them correctly mm. in the terms of what the customer is looking for, then it, there's a tendency to over-exaggerate, over-promise, and then ultimately under-deliver. Mm. So that's why I think the product marketing layer is a really important layer in, in the way that we take products to market. Mm. And it's interesting, too, that you talk about the, the crossover with sales on product because in the roles that followed, you really appear to have been at the nexus of marketing, sales, product, solution, corporate comms. Would it be safe to say that that's really the intersection point that's vital for success of any company, especially top line? Yeah, it's it certainly helps. Um, you know, anybody that's setting out in a in a in a product marketing or a marketing position, even if you're just starting off in in marcoms, you know, my recommendation would be over the next you know 10 15 years of your career try to find yourself into the different um the different responsibilities and roles mm. of, of marketing because then you know you get an appreciation for what your department are looking for from you mm. so you know by having the experience in in marcom's kind of positions and global management of the team position and digital marketing um, and, and a number of other roles which I've done I now understand that if if I'm asked for work we need some we need some text for our social media posts you know I know the type of social media posts that need to be written mm. to, to get the points across you know when you talk about lead generation ultimately that's married and managed by your customer marketing team but as a product marketer you need to understand right then we need to do lead generation what's going to be an attractive message that will help with that lead generation process. Mm. And there's lots of interdependencies there between the marketing team. So I think um, a good understanding of all of those roles is, is good. And if your career path is ultimately taking you towards a CMO role, which I still haven't achieved yet, <laughs> uh, but if but if you are heading towards a CMO role, then that's absolutely necessary. You need to have that experience in all of those positions, I think. Mm. And I, I guess from my experience, they've all got different lingo. It's almost like talking different languages and having the ability to be the translator across those different languages for each of the groups would be quite fundamental and an important consolidator of information to, to get the message through end to end. 
Yeah, and it's it's also, you know, you, you test and you you validate and, you know, when you work, especially, I mean, the messaging is the most important thing mm. because that spans all interested parties. Mm. Um, so the key is when you're, when you start on your message creation, you are working with a, you know, a team of, um, of people from different departments. You're working with R&D if you need to, to mm. understand what's really behind the features that you're trying to position. You're working with the product management team, the product owners. You're working with obviously sales, sales leadership, mm. because they're ultimately putting the sales strategy together. All of the marketing departments, working with training to, to understand mm. how they're going to train the product. There's, basically, there's a touch point in every part of the organization, really. Mm. Um, so you just need to collaborate um, and, uh, and make sure you know, to, to get the message right. Mm. And how close do you tend to get to customer as well and interacting with them to create the marketing message? So instead of sitting in the ivory tower or, or taking indirect information from sales, how close have you tended to, to get to the, the real customer and their feedback? It's it's not easy, mm. uh, to be honest. I mean, you're looking for what you really need is a you know a real advocate of your of your product and your company, um, for them to be willing to, to speak to you about the value of your product to them. Mm. Um, more recently, I think people are so time constrained that they. they they can't find time to speak to you about this type of things. Again, like going back to it's just marketing. It's not important. Mm. There's always there's always the next project which has got a you know a budget assigned to it that what needs to be executed and sales all over that. Mm-hmm. You know, or or ultimately, you know, being software being software, there's always bugs and things that need to be resolved. And if they are issues within a customer, then they won't let you go and talk about tell us how good the product is mm. um, if they've got problems with it. So, you know, there are, there's usually quite a few stumbling blocks to try and get in front of customers to get their opinion. I think the best way to do it is to form the relationships at things like industry events, which I've done numerous mm. times. Um, just form relationships with people, whether they've listened to you speak or whether you've been at a dinner and they've been at the table with you and you formed a relationship that way. And then that's the way that you can get to really talk to people in an informal way. And next to days, the, the perfect example yeah. of that too, I guess, is uh, the roadshow that actually took you out and uh, talking to customers. Perhaps oh, now's yeah, a good absolutely. time to, to tell us a little bit about uh, next to day. So to me, it seemed uh, really significant as an initiative for Comptel. And I, I've still got one of the books on the, the bookshelf behind me. I don't really recall <laughs> seeing anything else quite like that initiative out there in the industry. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, we took a, Comtel took a really big step when we um, employed a new CMO some years before the acquisition, Ari Vantanen, who came in as mm. our CMO. And he came in from a different market. He came in from the CM, from the uh, security market. Mm. And he looked at what we were doing through a completely different set of eyes because we were all telco people through and through. And because of his creativity and his energy, we were allowed to really flex our muscles a little bit and be a bit more creative in our thinking. So we, you know, we developed this paradigm of, you know, using Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We actually mapped future telecom services to that. I don't think whether you remember that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And then we yeah, used I found that. It quite interesting. I may have even blogged about it actually. Yeah, I think you did actually. Yeah, going back to it. <laughs> 
and then uh, and then we really you know we worked on this symbiotic and mutually beneficial relationship way back then i mean we're talking how long ago was that now 2012 years Mm. yeah 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 quite a while ago we were talking about that relationship between iot cloud and 5g and how they mutually will benefit each other moving forwards and we didn't know that back then i mean this is kind of just think about it logically about the way these things need to operate Mm. and they're all going to be based on data and the richness and the strength and the accuracy of the data that's being used which ultimately led to the analytics play in telco and we talked about how 5g was going to be you know this ultra fast technology which needed to be rolled out to do these new future type services where it iot would play a key role in terms of taking intelligence to the to the customer to to the edge and then and then talking about the cloud as the means for storing and processing data and i mean we were talking about that way back then Mm. so we were actually as Comta, we were quite ahead of our time but we didn't even know it (laughs) and then um i think i think the success of the of the next day work uh, roadshow i mean we did over the two because it ran for two years and we did two or four books, I think we did in the end. Mm. We did, I think it was over 30 uh, roadshow locations, and we actually spoke face-to-face to to over 300 customers, Mm. individuals. And that was, really was, because they were such small workshops, we were building one-to-one relationships with the people that attended. Mm. Um, And it was just, you know, I think think the success of it was really on the back of we were being more, we were more informational, and you know, with a very visual approach, mm. than just turning up and saying, "Right, we've brought in six product managers. They're going to talk about six different products, and then we're going to leave." Mm. Um, you know, I don't know whether you remember the the analogy that I did with the toothbrush. <laughs> um, that, you know, yeah. just I pulled out I pulled out a uh, a toothbrush that I'd got off one of the, the flights that I'd taken, mm. and I and basically just having a conversation like, "Who's got who's got a toothbrush?" Yeah. And then we, you know, we led then that we had a personal conversation with everybody that was there about toothbrushes and how to brush your teeth. Mm. And then we got on the topic of the connected toothbrush from Philips. And then ultimately we got that round to, but what do we do with the data that's being collected? Oh yeah, well it's going to go through, you know, a Bluetooth connection into your phone. Your phone's going to upload it onto the cloud, and there you go. You're processing data that's going to be used for monetization for Philips and other companies. So we really, just by using a simple principle like showing somebody a toothbrush, we got onto the topic of data processing in the cloud, et cetera, mm. et cetera, and monetization, which which really went down well. Mm. I think one of the other things that I found interesting is that producing the books as well, you, you got a number of really interesting people to talk about the industry from all sorts of different angles, from very much different than just a pure product marketing play and you had all sorts of interesting guest writers on that yeah oh yeah absolutely um again down to ari i mean ari's uh, vision there was you know to bring in these people from parallel industries you know mm-hmm. who were who were not just oh you know let it's let's not do let's not think about telcos talking to telcos about mm-hmm. telcos Let's look at, you know, what are the industries that will benefit from telco services? What are the industries that will become part of the telco ecosystem in the future? Mm. And let them talk about how they see the future for using telco is. Mm. There was a big, 
there was a big question I used to ask um, a lot of people was, because the audience was primarily telco, it was, do you see in the future that IoT will be a part of the telco industry vertical? Or do you feel that telco will be part of an IoT industry vertical? Mm. And the amount of telco people that said, well, IoT will just be part of telco. Mm -hmm. But of course, in reality, IoT is far bigger than telco, mm. but it just, you know, leverages telco as one of the ways to get the communication across. Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting, <laughs> I say interesting, depends what, you, what your team is interesting, but it's an interesting dinner conversation just to drop that question out. Do you think telco is part of IoT or IoT is part of telco? And uh, I think it's, it's quite clear now where we are now. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's interesting too. So telco people, uh, we probably do get the blinkers on and, and think through the, the eyes of just the telco lens. So it doesn't surprise me that answer. I suspect you'd still get that answer today uh, from a lot of people. Yeah, we, had, we did a workshop in Malaysia and we got a professor from the Singapore Institute there to come and talk to us. And he literally raised that point. He said, the reason why there's very little innovation in the telco space at that time was because we all go to the same events. We all listen to our peers talk about business that we're familiar with, and we all read the same telco journals. Um, so there's no surprise that there's no innovation. And that really was the catalyst where, you know, where we decided to put together the next today concept and have mm. people from around the industry um, to, to give a broader perspective. Yeah, absolutely. That was what really resonated with me, that's for sure. And uh, also, you've clearly had intersections across many of the technology elements of OSS. Uh, so, Assurance at InfraVista, Fulfillment with CompTEL, the network layer at Alcatel. OSS obviously covers a really broader state. Do your marketing strategies have to differ widely across companies and across those technologies? Not really. In fact, it, to be honest, I think it goes broader than that. I mean, the, the principles that you adopt when you, especially when you're doing product marketing, should be um, transferable skills across across multiple verticals. Mm. I mean, I've I've primarily worked in telco pretty much most of my life. However, you know, especially within Digital Route now, where we've got a significant enterprise play. I can see that employing the same techniques about describing product and offerings and, and uh, value propositions is going to be similar to what we've done previously. A product is a product ultimately. Mm. It's, it needs to have a value. It needs to have a purpose. So it shouldn't really matter which vertical industry it sits within, to be honest. There, there obviously are going to be the nuances of, of what specific things do, but generally how you build your messaging and your value propositions should be more or less the same. Mm. And given that you've risen up the, the corporate ladder into very senior and very global roles, have your, maybe your approaches, your thinking, your strategies changed over, over the different time and potentially even across different regions, do you find you, your approach has changed much? I think the shift has really come from back in the early days, if I think about, think back to, the, um, the Alcatel days, um, just after they acquired Newbridge, when I was doing the product marketing at the 46020, it was very much back then the idea that you would take a product, you would understand the features, you would um, push those features out. And, and literally it's that, it's push. From the bottom up, from the bottom out, you would push the product into market. 
um, not even thinking about what the target audience was, um, really just pushing it out and saying, look, you know, wave a flag in the air. We've got this product. It does this. Does anybody want to come and buy it? Mm. But I think over time, as I've matured in, in marketing roles, you know, you really develop the understanding that you've really got to be thinking about, you know, your your product needs to be pulled from the market out. Mm. So, you know, you need to be looking at what are the specific challenges the market's facing? Um, who are the people who are going to be interested in, in your product? You know, can you tailor your message specific to those people who are going to be either the influence or, or influencers or the buyers um, of your product? So it's really been a, you know, um, evolution through experience, mm. you know, as I've moved through. And in terms of is the differences between markets and, you know, regions, etc. There, there are, you know, that there, there are the specifics about various regions in, in the way that you articulate but we haven't necessarily, other than the maturity of those markets for the adoption of the products, you know, we haven't really tailored a specific message just for a specific country, et cetera. Mm. Or not, not in the roles that I've had to, I'm sure, you know, it is, it, it is needed in, in many industries, mm. but I haven't had to do that yet. Yeah. That seems to have been my observation as an outsider looking in on the market that we tend to do global campaigns or campaigns to the regions that each vendor serves more so than than a specific articulation for different regions. But like I say, I mean, the nuance there, it really is where they are in the maturity curve in, mm. in the adoption of the technology. Mm. You know, so I mean, cloud native is a typical example. You know, there are some countries in the world that are further on their cloud native adoption than others. There are some that are a, a lot more developed in 5G than, than others. So there's no point mm. going to, there's no point going to, let's say, Central Africa, you know, with a message about cloud native evolved advanced innovative 5g services mm. with every iot aspect self-driving cars yeah. because the infrastructure is not in place yet but you could certainly go and have that conversation in places like japan mm. you know so that that's really where the nuances lie i think mm. so looking back over the years are there any particular campaigns that have had really significant impact and you're able to articulate why they were successful um, yeah, I mean, there's a few. There's a few that come to mind. I, I think the first one, when I really noticed I was doing something different, was when at InfoVista, InfoVista had always had Vista Insight for networks for many years. Um, you know, IP performance management, primarily on a Cisco infrastructure, uh, multi-vendor, so it also supported Juniper and the likes. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it was based on Cisco's requirements um, for performance management. And, and the Vista Insight for Networks was a, a product which we detailed the features, release by release, push them out to market, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden we came up with Vista 360, which was a, a dashboard where you could get a higher level perspective on the performance and how it impacts mm. the actual performance of the company and, and, and its network, which is far more aligned to, the, to what customers wanted to mm. see than this screen by screen, drill down by drill down, traditional uh, traditional product. Mm. So, I mean, we managed to, um, the CTO took on that project with a few develop developers from, from Russia, I believe. And we had some uh, Russian developers on that one. And uh, we turned that around and working with Marcoms, we pushed that out really, really quickly. I think within three months, we'd gone from development to, to launch. 
that was a real success. And it was the first time really that we did it. I'd, la- I'd, I'd launched a product based on the way the user wanted to see the data that they needed. Mm. And then more recently in, in net number, actually, we had the opportunity to do two really interesting launches in the last um, um, 18 months or so. One of them around um, Stir Shaken. So Stir Shaken being the, you know, the um, network security solution, which is really high profile in the US uh, mm. at the moment um, about stamping out robocalling. Mm. So that was a really interesting launch that we did there. And that's still ongoing in that number, actually, because that's very much a hot topic. And then we also um, launched a brand new platform, uh, cloud native platform at NetNumber called Titanium, which, you know, was also a very successful launch. And this was this was um, literally we had to give compelling reasons why you move, you know, you customers would move away from a very traditional uh, switching routing and security platform onto something which is cloud native, innovative that could take them forwards um, into future requirements. Um, so that was that was a fun one to do in uh, with Titanium, um, and of course you know that theme you know cloud native platforms you know is carrying across into many of the OSS and BSS platforms now anyway. Mm. And do you have any I guess generic thoughts on how to best market? OSS and BSS solutions that tend to be very technical, but also the people who you market to are at multiple different levels from the sponsors have got a different message that they need to see to what the the technical influences are and potentially even the users. You got a particular generic approach on on how to think about OSS BSS as a marketer? Um you know, and like I said before, it's not so much marketing OSS has got a specific approach. Yeah. Uh, I think as long as you've got the underlying principles behind it. So it depends, you know, when we say marketing, we generally market through campaigns mm. uh, and campaigns don't have to be new product launch. And they can be, you know, just just raising awareness on a specific feature type. You can do a campaign based on a, you know, a piece of content that you're releasing. Or, or just make, you know, there's something in your existing product which suddenly has become very relevant and you want to campaign around it to generate interest. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you basically construct your campaigns based on what you're trying to achieve, whether it's lead generation or brand awareness. Mm-hmm. And if you take a launch, for example, you know, there are a number of steps that you would do in order to, you know, to pull a launch together. So, Obviously, you'd you'd have, do your research and you'd get your insights on the on the product itself. Uh, sorry, on the market itself that you're going after. Mm. This would be things like market analysis, competitive analysis, undergoing a, a primary research project with a you know with a major analyst, mm. um, and then also gathering insights from you know from the field. So you know who are the likely influencers and buyers associated to the product that you're launching. You'd look at you know, what are the observed and the perceived challenges associated to what you're trying to launch against uh, and, and deliver against? Um, and then also, you know, your touch points. So you'd look at where do I need to outreach in order to get the most interaction uh, and engagement with what we're trying to, with what you're trying to say. So that's kind of the research and insights piece. Obviously, then you'd need to look at your, your message development. Mm. Um, which is absolutely critical because there's a number of key things within messaging that you need to pull together. 
And then look at a content creation plan or a content management plan. What content do you need? Do you just need white papers? Are you going to do video? Video has become a very popular means of getting content out there. So I don't know about you, but I'd much rather be clicking on a website and watching a 30-second video than having to download a 12-page white paper Mm. and find the time to read that. So you need to think about your content strategy as to what's going to be of the most effect. If you're doing a technical launch, for example, it may be that a 12-page white paper is something that's most appealing to the people you're trying to sell to. But if you're pitching something at a, at a much higher level, at a business level, then it could be that a 30-second video is going to be more attractive to that type of audience. Mm. So you need to strategize about what the best, what the best content is going to be. Mm. And you've um, really emphasized the, the launch there. You find that is a lot more of an amplifier than just, say, a trickle effect of content release or um, marketing information release? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that, that launch, to be honest, that launch process would span over, you know, let's say nine, nine to 12 months. You know, mm. it would be a long tail campaign in most mm. cases. So you wouldn't suddenly push everything else out at once. Um, you'd have a content plan where you'd be building, let's say you've got a a blog series, which is going to span over three months, or you've Mm. got three white papers you're going to release with two months in between. You know, so you keep the conversation going and keep the narrative going around the new product that you're trying to launch. Mm. Interesting. And I kind of interrupted you before you you fully got the, the rest of the answer out, I think. Um, yeah, no, there's, um, you know, I mean, after you, obviously after you, you've you looked at your content creation plan, you know, you can then look at message testing. Mm. So have you got the message right? And what you said earlier about, you know, do you talk to customers about, uh, about messaging? That's the point where you try and engage friendly customers to see, you know, would this make sense? And also test it with key analysts who are specialists in, the, in that area or that domain that you're trying to sell into. Um, and then you pivot the messaging accordingly. And then... Then an, another important phase is, I found, is market setting. So I, well, I call it market setting. So prior to the actual um, launch of the product that you're going to bring out, let's say three months before, start going out there and being a corporate um, or an, an industry citizen, I should say, where you start talking about themes um, which are going to be ultimately associated with the product you're about to launch. Mm. If you come out cold with a brand new product, which has got a brand new unique value proposition, you're literally hitting you're hitting a wall as soon as you come out into the market. Mm. So really want to, what you ideally want to do is warm the market up to your conversation. Start the pre-launch. Yeah, yeah. Start talking about the themes that you are, you are ultimately going to be delivering against um, mm. without saying, oh, we've got a product, if you know what I mean. There's there's ways to do that. Uh, and we did that fairly recently with NetNumber before I left mm. on the uh, on the cloud native uh, platform launch. Um, and then, of course, you know, you then got to consider as part of your launch, you've got to consider your sales and your partner enablement processes. So how are you going to sell this? Is it direct sell? Is it through a partner ecosystem? How are you going to sell it? And do you can you enable them well enough? Um, internally, you need to launch your product internally before you launch it externally. Mm. Um, so everybody's on board and they know what's coming out. They don't get, you know, caught by surprise. Um and then plan your external launch 
which ultimately you'd find a good vehicle for. And usually a good vehicle for external launch is something like a major industry event. Mm. Many people do things like Mobile World Congress is normally a platform for major releases. Um, and there's other key key events which go on. You know, there's Mobile World Congress in Asia, TMF in 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 the OSS and BSS case. You know, mm. the old TMF in in Nice um, is always a good place to to plan a launch around. Mm. Um, and then um, yeah, then you've got to consider your uh, your advertising tactics uh, and your social media uh, plan associated to that and then ultimately you then start capturing the leads and work out what you want to do in terms of nurturing the leads that you're generating mm. based on the content that you've pushed out which is ultimately held behind a you know a, um, a firewall or a gateway so that you know you you swap the uh, the content that you're offering for a for a bit of data about somebody who's downloading mm. them mm. So that kind of closes the loop on the, the lead generation part. You know. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that's so, I mean, I've been fairly generic there in, in mm. terms of the, the principles and processes behind what you would employ in a marketing tactic. And you can see that that could apply to any, any product really. There's nothing mm. specific there for OSS. Um, it's just the way that you message that is where you define you know the the differentiation of it being an OSS product versus a you know a standard product or, or whatever it may be. Mm. Um, and, and do you tend to follow a fairly standardised or, or formulaic approach to your launches? So there's obviously a number of steps that seem quite uh, sequenced there in the way you describe them. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you map that onto your timeline. So mm. you know, I've always asked product management. I've always asked to, to let me know at the at the product inception stage. So when product managements are at a point where they are discussing a new product concept, um, before the features are locked down, before before any of that is is hardened, you know, involve product marketing mm. because ultimately, when it comes to launch, you need to understand what was the reason why we decided to launch this product in the first place. Mm. In fact, is yeah. that your your two minutes out of the three hours again? Just like OSS is an afterthought, is marketing uh, yeah. also an afterthought for product? Exactly, and and in a number of in a number of companies, not the OSS BSS companies, but in a number of companies <laughs> where I've worked, um, it's been common to get what eight weeks notice mm. of a launch where the product has already been cooked, it's already mm. been locked down, the roadmaps have been approved. The first release is due out very shortly, um, and it gives you no time at all to do all of your, you know, your campaign planning to to mm. maximise the effect of the product launch. Obviously, from what you've described, the the content, the storytelling, the copywriting, I guess, is such an important tool for any marketer. Do you have a, a standardised approach to content development, say, story arcs or, or focus areas, or is it? a more of a as needs basis for each each launch or each campaign that you're doing yeah it's 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 relevant to the actual um launch or campaign that you're doing to be honest you know you'll get the ideas you develop the message you develop the ideas of what you want to launch and why you want to launch and then look at the best and most efficient ways to get that message out you know the, the problem with a lot of white papers that are written um in support of launches 
they necessitate, uh, sorry, necessitate the input from product managers, hmm. um, you know, to to write down and define what the what the product is and what it does and why it does what it's what it's been told it does. But you know, it's the wrong people. So you know, you go after product managers who are literally run off their feet trying to get the product out the door, and you're knocking on their door saying, "Can you write me a white paper?" <laughs> it's not and nine happen. times out. Nine times out of 10, product managers are willing, more than willing to say, oh, yeah, of course, I'll get that done. But it's not very high on the priority list because you've got customers knocking on the door waiting for the first release. Um, So what what I've tended to do is engage with real high-quality media agencies Mm. um, who know the industry, not just random generic content writers, content developers really working with people in the industry who have got their own media capabilities, understand the industry, have got resources that they can call upon um, to get proper good quality papers written. And, you know, I've got no bones to, you know, to shout out um, Mobile World Live here who wrote a couple of excellent papers for Net Number for us. And the way that we went about doing it was literally just engaging with a writer from, you know, from the agency um, to interview uh, one, two, or three people from the organization who have got different perspectives on mm. what, what's been uh, launched or the theme. So it could be the product manager they interview. Uh, it could be the head of sales that they interview. It could even be the CEO or it could be the CTO. You know, whoever you can find to to give a good background onto why we're doing this product launch. Mm. And then let somebody else write that for you. And you, you know, you take that out. It may cost you a small amount to get it written, but the quality of what, of what you get delivered is, is really high. Mm. And that's, that's one tactic that I've, that I've kind of, um, I've taken on. Mm. And that, that's really, really interesting as well. So I guess I also get the impression that a lot of the white papers and a lot of the collateral in our marketing is written by technical people and therefore, it can tend towards the the overly technical or overly complex. Is that something that you see as common or maybe is that a common mistake that you see others producing? It comes comes down to the persona and the role that you're targeting with the product. I mean, Mm. if ultimately what you're selling is, is a really technical thing, I mean, you know, net numbers, products and portfolio and solutions were technical. I mean, they Mm. were deep within the network it was signaling firewalls it was dscs it was stps it was mm. <laughs> more acronyms than you could possibly imagine yeah um, but yeah but it but it you know it was a technical a technical thing that was being built in that number or is being built in that number mm. so there is a requirement you are selling to ultimately um, network architects and and those sort of people so you do need to have technical writing in there but at the same time as well as the technical people who will ultimately be the influencers in the buying cycle, you've also got to appeal to the people who are looking at the business side of it. And, you know, how is this purchase that we're about to make going to benefit the business as a whole? Mm. So you've got to also have what people would term as the marketing white paper, (laughs) Mm. which talks the business language and talks about, you know, value proposition to the business you know that, that you're serving mm. do you think it works where it's actually a combination so the business white paper uh, mixed with the technical white paper there you know you will find papers that are written like that mm. 
But to me, that's companies that don't know who they're targeting with a message. Mm. I mean, all you know, even technical white papers will have an executive summary at the at the, at the beginning. Mm. They should have, which outlines the market or the the problem that's been solved by this particular by the product that you're launching. But you can't do a detailed business value proposition, return of interest statements, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in the same document that you would do all of your technical details of bits and bytes and uh, you know and how the product works within the network in network architecture because it's appealing to two different audiences now mm. maybe you don't have the resources or the cash and um, the budget to to fund two papers you're mm. going to put it in one and then you're just going to um you know campaign that to two different audiences which you can do mm. but to me it makes the content overly long and confusing in what it's trying to say mm. interesting and so I, I, there's a truckload of information out there on on marketing approaches and and so forth, but for such a small industry, a small niches, OSS and telco, are there any particular rock stars or mentors or sources of information that you've really looked that have guided you through your your period? Um. I mean, you know, if I if I look back at you know my managers who kind of steered me down this course. You know, Lutz Lutz Rakow was the uh, the director of product marketing at, back in the Alcatel days and Newbridge days. You know, he started me on this marketing journey really, and you know, we worked it out together. To be honest, as as we as we move forward, when I went to InfoVista, I had a close relationship with the um, with the CEO there, Philippe Bazanian. Um, unfortunately, he passed away in 2020, but I used to have some really good conversations with Philippe in terms of where the industry was going, why it was going the direction it was, why InfoVista was moving in the direction they mm. were moving. And those those were good times. And that was quite um, good to hear directly from the CEO, the things that he was trying to achieve with the company. So that when it came to doing the marketing uh, piece, you knew you were aligning to what the objectives of the company were. And then I've already mentioned Ari. I mean, Ari came in and Ari really tipped the needle in terms of um, transforming the way that I looked at marketing yeah, he was very instrumental in that. In terms of rock stars, there's a number of them out there. I think the only one really that I have read and listened to is, is Simon Sinek. Mm -hmm. And I think Simon Sinek's model of, you know, why, how, what, mm. uh, to define the message, you know, divine messages is something that I stick by. Defining why am I talking to you? That's the first principle. Why have mm. I got something to say? Uh, talking about the market opportunity, the challenge that's being faced, etc. The how, which is then talking about how that challenge should be addressed or how it needs to be addressed or approaches that need to be taken mm. to, to address that challenge. And then ultimately the what being, you know, what as a company we are offering you to help solve that problem. Mm. Um, and then that breaks down even further. So within the explanation of your offering, you then need to define the four main areas of concern that, that your buyers will have. You know, how will it help me make more revenue? You know, how will it help me save operational costs, particularly in the OSS piece? Mm. How does your offering help me minimize the risk? If I, if I was to deploy and buy your product, how can I be assured that it's not going to take all my services offline? Mm. Am I going to lose any customers? What is the risk involved? And then the more recently, one that came about, I suppose, in the last 10 years 
is how can I connect to my customers better? You know, and those, if I think if you can define your message based on those seven points, then you're not far off getting a, you know, a, a basis for a compelling message. Mm. You've talked a little bit about net number and net number was kind of just really on the verges of the, the OSS BSS industry, but you're now back really in the trenches with BSS with digital route. Are you able to tell us a little bit about their scope, size, products, offerings? I can certainly share what <laughs> I can share what's public and what I know already. Oh, of course, um, yeah, yeah, of course. So, digital route has has been, um, I suppose, on on my radar of interesting companies for many years. When I was at Comptel and we were you know, pushing the mediation, um, the convergent mediation propositions, digital route was always there as a key competitor. You know, we were one for one in a lot of cases. And then this opportunity arise to go back. And, and what's different now is I think what's been done with Digital Route, they are really at the forefront of, of where the industry is heading with, with the way that they're positioning themselves. Mm. I think the unique value that they've got to the market is that as well as being telco specialists in terms of you know the whole mediation story with the platform they've got and the amount of customers they've got in terms of capturing and processing mm. and, and um, you know assuring the revenue and the data that's coming in from from networks they've also got a very good footprint in enterprise mm. so there are only few companies that can say that they are both telco and enterprise and I think that's important because of the, you know, the convergence that's going on at the moment yeah. where, you know, I talked about the symbiotic relationship before about IoT, 5G and cloud. Mm. There's another similar one going on now, which is enterprise telco and hyperscalers, where they are really converging into building a, you know, a common set of interests and, and approaches to, to what they take to the market. Obviously, the hyperscalers are coming in with their, you know, with their stacks, with AWS, etc., which is being used in a common way by enterprises and telcos in order mm. to situate their systems. In terms of um, the telcos proposition, telcos, you know, that have been specialists in providing connectivity and speeds and feeds to consumers and enterprises are now in a position where they are looking to help enterprises in their own right so you know it's not just a b2b proposition i'm going to provide a vpn to enterprise x it's now saying right then i'm going to provide you a connectivity package which is going to help you work into um, your clients in the industrial enterprise or in finance or wherever and telcos are finding themselves reaching that extra step into enterprise uh, which they haven't necessarily had to do before and the good thing about digital roots position is by understanding the enterprise requirements and and knowing what telcos need to do to get the right data out to serve those enterprises digital route find themselves in a unique position where they can serve serve this this crossover or this converged opportunity mm. um, which is good so the company was founded in uh, 2000 they've got approximately 240 people uh, worldwide so about the same sort of size as uh, as comptel and then there's um, there's two there's two approaches. There's the there's the uh, the main mediation zone platform, which has been out there for for a while now. There's a there's a new version of mediation zone, mediation zone ten, which is cloud native and it serves all the needs of five G etc. 
you know, in a, in a very strong way, but it's also got the, um, the background and legacy knowledge that that's been pulled through from the, uh, from the early mediation zone releases. And then they've got the new usage data platform, which is, is teed up as a software as a service platform to serve these requirements of, you know, of enterprises who are moving their innovative new business models from, you know, if you think about the way the market's moving, you, you may have seen some of the talk about this in the industry about the move from ownership to usership, mm. where if you think, if you think, if we think about our own lives, how much do we own now compared to how much have we subscribed to? Mm. So myself, I mean, I look at my music. I, I haven't bought a CD for how many years? I don't know, because mm. I'm subscribed to a music service. The, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, companies now where you can, you know, you lease your car for a small amount of time just to get from point A to point B and you don't need a car for, for a majority of the time. So mm. why would you own a car that sits on your drive and it's, you know, it's an expensive asset that just appreciates. Mm. So there's loads of different innovative business models which have kicked in and accelerated over the last 12 months with the, with the pandemic which I think helps, you know, uh, justifies uh, Digital Roots position and standing and value proposition to, um, you know, to the enterprise and to the uh, the telco market. Mm. And it's a fascinating point you make too around the, the usage data because, yes, it's it's really, really changed since the old days of the, the voice CDRs and the data that was collected then. The, the point you made about touching uh, the three different uh, segments and, aggregating the data so that you can look to monetize that usage data in in different ways and new business models is really fascinating to me as well yeah it's i mean the whole complexity piece as well i mean Hmm. you look we talk about innovative new business models that can be created by these these modern enterprises really who are leveraging 5g as a an underlying enabling technology that enables their business to to do what they want it to do at high speed and low latency and you know and good reach yeah and I, you know you you think about the ecosystems that are involved in some of these complex billing models especially when you look at industrial in enterprise for example you know within a factory you've got um, autonomous vehicles moving around factories moving stock around you've got manufacturing machinery which is working autonomously and controlled remotely and you know there are so there are there are companies that are supplying robotics into these companies mm-hmm. as as vendors to these enterprises to these industrial enterprises and there is a reliance on getting data back from that machinery to say how much was this machinery used at a certain point in time how many hours has it used how many miles has it traveled there is so much data floating around mm. these these complex use cases that it's absolutely essential that a platform that that uh, digital roots that that's got a platform like that which can properly pull in this data from multiple sources make sense of it you know eliminate errors in the data um and consolidate in a way so that it can then be used for you know uh, monetization as you as you said mm. and really nascent uh, kind of technologies or nascent abilities does that make your job as a marketer easier like it's the, oh, the yeah. purple cow as Seth Godin calls it yeah, absolutely. If I if I can get passionate and excited about a proposition, mm. as you clearly uh, did, just with what yeah, you articulated just I, then, I do apologise. <laughs> I, uh, 
when I truly believe in something, I do tend to get a little bit excited. Yeah, but, don't we know, all? That's, that's my job. Um, <laughs> that's what I have to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I assume digital routes, marketing and sales propositions, the, particularly the sales propositions, are really too sophisticated to simply track click-throughs on digital products. How do you really close the loop? Is it We talked a little bit about it earlier on of using the, the kind of uh, content offering for a potential customer or prospect to provide their details, which then becomes a lead. There are other ways that you look to, to close the loop. Is it more personal customer interactions, internal interactions, other marketing metrics that help you close the loop? Yeah, a lot of the metrics these days are brought in by analytics tools. Mm. Um, I mean, if you think of, you know, we go back to, you know, campaigns, which is, you know, the heart and soul of what of what a marketing department runs. You know, those campaigns will be built on a database of, of connections or mm. contacts that you've got within your sales platform. So Salesforce is a typical example mm. of your CRM. That will ultimately have a, um, a marketing automation platform attached to that. Mm. Um something like HubSpot or, mm. or Pardot that I was using in, in NetNumber. And within that platform, then you can then build your marketing automation processes. Mm. So you can automate your emails you and then, and then you can monitor the responses of who opens, who clicks um, on, on any of those things that you're sending out to your customer base, uh, which gives you good metrics. Um, those are people that you already know of. So if they're in your database, you've got contact details, you have, you know, you have email addresses and you have phone numbers in some cases, you've got full names, you know the role of that person, you know the job, the company they're working for. Mm. So if you're sending out as part of your campaign, a targeted campaign, you're sending out an email to a specific segment of your target audience you can work out how successful that that campaign has been as you as you progress through the campaign and then you know if if after three weeks after sending an email you've only had 500 people open it of 20,000 that you sent it to mm. you know that you need to pivot the message mm. so you can then tweak your message accordingly and see if you can get you know um, a better open rate on your on your next email and then if I mean this is all talking about prospects that you already know these are mm. people that have previously downloaded content and submitted an, a form for, for you, then then you look at the people that you don't know. Mm. So with those people, you've got to look at nurturing tactics where you are, first of all, seeing from an IP address. Is there an IP address which is regularly clicking on your website? Mm. You know, are you seeing a lot of activity there? So is there anything that you can offer to that necessarily, that, that IP address? Mm that may tempt them to click download and fill in a form to download a piece of content, at which mm. point they are in your database and you can work on your nurturing campaign then to get them extra information or, or really drill down to what they're looking for and, and serve their needs. So, yeah, I mean, Google Analytics is a good way to monitor that sort of traffic of the mm. people that you don't know. And then, and then you've got your ad campaigns as well. So you've got paid advertising, which you can run through Google Ads. You can do it through LinkedIn. You know, LinkedIn is a great tool to, to reach the audience that you're going after as well. So there's a number of tactics that can be employed to understand your target audience, how you're reaching them, if they're interested in your message, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. People often talk about fishing in a barrel. So you know exactly the, the audience or where you're bound to catch fish. 
So I haven't really seen a, a common place where everybody really gets together other than, say, the conferences you talked about earlier and, and LinkedIn. Are there any other particular places where OSSPSS uh, prospects tend to, to congregate? Um, well, I mean, you know, like you said, conferences, I think for OSSBSS, I think, you know, it has been for how many years, 20 odd years and more, you know, uh, digital transformation world, mm. telemanagement forum, whatever you want to call it, telemanagement world, mm. um, has always been the place to have that, those sort of conversations with OSS and BSS people. The other place, I mean, LinkedIn, to me, LinkedIn is the, is the best place you can go mm. to, to reach the right audience. And you just have to, you know, get your message right um, and talk about pertinent topics that people will will read and, and accept. Um, the, the, the old physical uh, face-to-face events has really, you know, as you, as you know, dropped off, the, mm. dropped off the radar in the last 12 months. And I think it's going to be slow to return as well. What we did see was was two things. You had companies that were doing an innovative approach to running online events, mm. so things like uh, you know a telecom TV. If you know telecom mm-hmm. TV, their events are very debate based, audience interaction, real face to face conversations going on. Even though it was on you know on a, on a video platform, but mm. the quality of what they put out is so high. That that was still getting you know um, really good rates. Where I think the the problems were where you had people who were traditionally running physical events, face to face events, and they literally just took that entire face to face event online and expect the same audience return. Mm. And when you're getting when you've got a you know a, a catalogue of a number of face to face events, you will cherry pick what you can budget to afford to travel to, mm. you know, is it relevant to what I'm actually trying to do? You really can cherry pick the ones that are interesting. Mm. But all of a sudden we've been inundated and flooded by emails to join online events. Mm. And I and I think the interest in that has really waned. Those sort of companies are really struggling. I mean, Mobile World Congress, you know, they've tried to get Mobile World Congress back off the ground this year, um, assuming that, you know, the pandemic will be under control. And you've probably seen it as I have, you know, the number of big names that have pulled out of this relaunch of Mobile World Congress this year, you know, has been quite quite a statement, really. People aren't confident enough to return to those events yet. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's the interesting thing with the, uh, an event at Nice where you're there for three, four days that you're a captive audience, whereas I guess with a lot of the, the online sessions, we we might book into those and then listen to part of it, but then get distracted by um, urgent emails or phone calls. And Absolutely. so the attention's lost a little bit with some of the, yeah. the online conferences. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think a new, you know, companies need to think a little bit cleverer about the sort of events that they're putting online. If you're going to do a webinar, just do a 30-minute webinar. Mm. You know, people are more likely to find 30 minutes in their calendar because it's a coffee break. Mm. Finding a full hour when people, like you say, they'll, they'll tune in, but they're not really listening. They're doing emails and other stuff. Sell it, sell it as a coffee, as a coffee event. Mm. <laughs> just be innovative about it and the way that you... The way you pitch it, you don't have to tell everything on a webinar. Mm. Just set the scene, get, gather the interest, and then get you know put plenty of follow-up actions on the end of it for people to get more information. Mm. Um, there's, there's a number of things that can be employed. Mm. So we've covered a, a pretty broad estate today, and we've covered a lot of really interesting areas. 
What does the future hold for, for OSS and Telco, in your opinion, and how are you specifically positioning for it? I think as we as we discussed a couple of times, I think the move to using cloud native platforms, the move into cloud software as a service, the shift from ownership to usership, these are all important things which are you know where OSS and BS platforms will start to play. There's more and more vendors, you know, you look at their marketing material and everything is, oh yeah, it's a cloud native platform. Mm. Um, you know, which being cloud native isn't the thing, but what it means being cloud native is that you are agile, you can be flexible, you mm. can re-engineer, you know, you've got agile development processes, you've got more and more efficient ways to roll out and deliver new software releases. Um, so just the very the very fact that you are working in a cloud native environment means that you can serve your customers better, I think. So I think, you know, we'll see an increasing amount of, of vendors who are talking, you know, the cloud native story. And then, you know, this whole move to, you know, treating customers different, thinking thinking about the, the business to human effect. How how are people running their lives at the moment? And and like I said, it's it's around subscriptions. Mm. Um, you know, not everything will move to subscription, of course. But I think it means that, you know, your future is predictable. So business models, if you can get your customers onto subscriptions, then you've got predictable incomes mm. that's coming in, predictable revenues. Unlike um, the really old lumpy big projects, like probably back in the InfoVista days, it would have been yeah, million yeah. dollar projects, but they come in really lumpy streams of revenue. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, I mean, subscri- you know, subscription economy isn't the be all and end all because... Mm-hmm. Um, I had it mentioned to me earlier today, you know, it's it's great being in a subscription economy, but, you know, there is still, you know, you'll still get locked into subscriptions mm-hmm. <laughs> and there'll still be penalties to get out of subscriptions, mm. but it just gives people the opportunity to tailor their work and personal lives more contextually to the way that they run their lifestyles. And that's why I think it's going to be an ever increasing trend, really. Mm. And any beliefs that you hold contrarian to to what you feel like the rest of the industry uh, believes? <laughs> uh, well, I, you know that we we have mentioned we touched on on the big conferences, you mm. know the big events, you know the mobile world congresses and and the similar sort of events that you get around the world. I'm not a big believer that the amount of money that is spent on those massive events gives the return that you're looking for mm. uh, in the in the short term I, and i i re- recount this this one event that i did um, all the time when i was at InfoVista, we did a, a network performance management event it was very focused and that's all that they talked about network performance mm. management i think it cost us something like five thousand to to attend and sponsor yeah. there were five sponsors but there were 30 operators represented in the room Mm. <laughs> and all of the five sponsors um, were um, from different domains, so they, they to- spoke about different topics. Mm. The sponsors were given the opportunity to pitch what they did, and all of that was for, I think it was £5,000 or €5,000 at the time. Um, and, and, and out of that, we got countless leads and follow-on conversations. So I think, you know, going for more targeted events which where you've got a real targeted audience and you've got a very specifically targeted message i think that is 
sometimes better than than just spending all of your half of your marketing budget for the year on a single event mm. and just so that you can have a bigger boo than the than the people next to you mm. perhaps the the next day of uh, of today so would that exactly. that approach yeah. still work successfully today <laughs> Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, the principle behind what we did with Next Today, and also the Next Today events that we ran in mm. in Finland. I mean, you know, it wasn't just the tour that we did; it was also the I think we did three events in total, um, where we actually, as a company, we ran an industry event that that really looked at a three sixty degree view around the products that we offered and the solutions mm. that we offered. Those sort of things, which make the industry a bit more interesting. Mm. Mm, for sure. Yeah, again, we've covered quite a bit today. Are there any particular pearls of wisdom or anything that uh, that I've perhaps overlooked that you'd like to talk about? Um, not really. I mean, you know, I I work to the principle of uh, of get the story right. You know, mm. if you if you can't have a conversation, you got to think about it as um, make it conversational, make your narrative conversational. Could you stand in a pub and have this conversation with the person you're trying to sell to? Or do you have to be standing in a room with a laptop open and 50 slides to present? Um, <laughs> just make make your proposition, make your message conversational, and make it correctly targeted to you know understand your audience really. Mm, brilliant. So yeah, we've covered some great uh, great topics. <laughs> if there are people out there who are listening who would like to to continue the conversation, where can they find you? Um, LinkedIn. I'm all over LinkedIn. I'm a big advocate. Um, I'm always, I'm always over there. And I, uh, I do apologise if I've got a little bit passionate during your passionate about OSS. Um, <laughs> I loved it. Loved discussion. it. <laughs> no, it's been fantastic. I really appreciated you you dropping in on the on the podcast, Steve. Uh, really fantastic insights, and it's been a pleasure having you on. It's been fun. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dave, and thanks also for the audience. Uh, we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Passionate About OSS podcast. You can find more episodes, more than 2,500 blogs, and our contact details over at passionateaboutoss.com. Passionate About OSS.